called the inductive method of Bible study. And there is nothing like studying the Bible from God's perspective, studying it verse by verse, precept upon precept. Um, and that last song that we sang, you could actually do an inductive study on that song, and you would be encouraged, you would be blessed, you would be amazed at what God has accomplished for us just by looking at the words of that song. The, the key words in that song, words like vicarious and propitiation and, and all of those words that have rich theological meaning. And I know that a lot of times churches are staying away from or kind of, uh, excuse me for saying this, but dumbing down theology. Uh, and, and you know what? When we know the theological terms that Scripture uses, oh, we are blessed because of it. All right? So... Um, uh, just be encouraged by the kind of songs that point us to such great truths about our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, well, take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to continue our study here together in 1 Peter this morning. And um, again, this has been somewhat of a convicting passage of Scripture, a book um, that has called us to look at where we are and see what needs to be changed in our lives. Now, as Peter uses, uh, as Peter continues his thought this morning uh, in verses 8 through 12, he uses a word that preachers are discouraged from using in homiletics class. Okay? Uh, our text starts off this morning with the word finally. Okay? Uh, and as preachers, we are not supposed to use that word unless you actually really mean finally. Uh, and there's lots of reasons for that, but usually when you guys hear that word finally, you know what you do? And you might not even know that you do it, but this is what you do. Because you think you're done. You think the pastor's done talking. Peter is not done talking here, even though he says finally. Um, in fact, what Peter is doing here when he says finally is he's, he's telling you, I'm, I'm finishing a particular topic focus, and we're going to move on to something different after I'm done with that. And so as we think this morning of what Peter is saying finally about, he's saying finally about this idea of submission. And some of you are probably saying, boy, it's about time. Finally, he's getting over that. Um, but you know, Peter has really called our attention to some things that are very, very important for us in our walk with the Lord. If we want to be effective uh, live, Christians, we have to live the way God wants us to live. And that's really what Peter is challenging us with here in, in his whole book, but especially when he's been talking about these ideas of submission. You'll look at the title of our message this morning, and the title is Being of the Right Mind. Okay. Now, a lot of times, if you've done a will or something like that, it says, I so-and-so, being of sound mind, make these provisions or these declarations about what I want to happen with whatever I have left. Okay. Um, Peter is challenging us to be of the right mind. And so he wants us to understand that God has called us to live like Christ. Really, this whole idea of submission is about Christ-likeness. Uh, we think about it, what was, if, if we were to summarize Christ's ministry here on earth, what would it be likened to? Jesus himself said, I came not to do my own will, but the will of my Father who sent me. So Jesus submitted his life, his plans, his desires to the will of the Father. Now, like no one else, 
his will, his plan, his likeness was exactly what God the Father wanted. Okay, But he said, nevertheless, remember when he prayed his, his prayer in the garden when he was in agony and he was anticipating the, the, the awful things that was going to happen to him? Now listen, he knew everything that was going to unfold because he's God. He knew that he was going to wear a crown of thorns. He knew that he was going to be beaten. He knew he was going to have to carry that cross up Golgotha's hill. He knew all of that. And he even knew what it was going to feel like. Man. You know, when we go, Paul had surgery this last week. You know what? He was happy for them to put him out for that surgery. When we have things that we don't want to have to go through, um, they, we like it when we don't have any way to remember it or think about it. Um, and so Jesus, he knew all about it. He knew what it was going to feel like. He knew everything that he was going to endure when he went to the cross. And he has submitted himself to that because he knew it was the Father's plan. It was the Father's will. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Peter is talking about submitting to the Father's will for each one of us. And he declares it for us in the pages of Scripture. He calls us to submit in various ways into different entities. Um, He's covered the fact that Christians, all Christians, should submit to the governing authorities. And he knows that it's tough to submit to those people when they're not acting the way they ought to be acting. Again, we reminded you that he was submitting to a guy by the name of Nero. I wouldn't have wanted to submit to Nero either. That's why Peter wrote to the Christians and said, hey, you must submit because God put him there. doesn't mean that you do wrong. It just means that you submit when you are able to submit. We already mentioned how the Russian Christians are opposing what is going on in Ukraine. They're not in favor of it, and they are opposing it, and they're paying the penalty. Russian Christians, this is not something new for Russian Christians. Since the inception of the church in Russia, well, at least in modern history, they have been facing persecution. They have been meeting underground. I've seen memes on Facebook that says, when you gather this morning as a church, don't complain about this or about that or the chairs are too soft or they're too hard or the preach is going too long, but praise the Lord that you're not meeting in some underground tunnel with bombs going off overhead. Wow. That brings a certain perspective to life, doesn't it? We need to submit where God calls us to submit. And we need to pray for our governing authorities. We need to pray for those who are in charge. We need to pray for the likes of Vladimir Putin. As much as we'd not like to see that guy uh, be the president, be someone in power, that's where he is because God has placed him there. For what reason? I'm not even going to try to venture to give you a reason for that. But God in his sovereignty knows what he's doing. And we have to trust in that. We have to rely on that. So, so Peter says, submit to the government. Submit to your employer. Really? Yeah. You don't like your job? Go look for another one. But as long as you're in the job, you need to submit to your employer. You need to do what they tell you to do, unless they tell you to do wrong. God never calls us to submit to sinfulness. Okay? So uh, submit to your employer. And then he really got to the meddling area last week when he said, Wives, submit to your husbands. Again, not something that is necessarily easy, but God says this is what you need to do. You want to be effective in your Christian life? Unsaved, 
you, uh, wives who have unsaved husbands, you want to see your husband come to know Jesus as your Savior? One of the most effective tools you will have in seeing that happen is for you to submit to them, even though they're unsaved. And Peter is going to remind us that if we want to be effective communicants of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to be submitting in these areas of our life. We can't expect God to use us if we're not being obedient to the commands that he has given to us in the pages of Scripture. This morning we're going to see one last command in the area of submission from the pen of the Apostle Peter. Would you stand together with me as we read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-12. through 12. 1 Peter chapter 3, read together with me from the screen if you would. Finally, all of you be of one mind. Having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For we who love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray together as we embark on our study this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you again for the scriptures that you have preserved for us. Those holy words that have been written down from holy men of God who spoke as they were led by the Holy Spirit. We thank you for those men uh, who recorded scripture and lived out the examples that you are calling us to live today. We are thankful, Father, that your word is just as applicable today as it has ever been. It is just alive today as it has ever been because you are the one who gave this word. You are the one who protects it. You are the one who keeps it uh, relevant for us in every age in which we live. Father, we pray that you'd help us to be obedient to your commands that we find in the pages of Scripture. This whole topic of submission, let us not be... Uh, thankful that Peter's finished with this topic because it's been uneasy for us. But let us be thankful for because Peter has called our, to our attention the need to be obedient, the need to follow the example of Jesus, the need to follow the example of the apostles, and the need to do what you have challenged us in these, in these words over the last several weeks. Thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit who lives within us, who Uh, helped these men of old write the pages of scripture and as powerful as he was when he was helping the the saints write scripture, he's just as powerful today to help us observe it and obey it. So Father, we pray that your spirit would encourage us to do what is right today as we finish this topic of submission from Peter's pen. Thank you again for loving us and making us part of your family and calling us to these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Again, let me just remind you that number three is not a typo. Uh, It is the third area in this idea of submission that we are addressing, and it's in chapter 3, verses 8 through 12 that we just read. And this morning, we're going to consider a resolution for the church. Okay, a resolution for the church. Every year... 
As New Year's Eve approaches, or as New Year's approaches, people begin thinking about and making what has become known as New Year's resolutions. Truth be told, this is a bad use for the word resolution, okay? Uh, Studies have shown that most people that make resolutions break those resolutions by the end of February. So if you've made a resolution, there's a good chance that you've probably already uh, thrown that aside and you're not following through with it, um, just because that's the way human nature is. Um, Perhaps you didn't even get out of the first month of the new year before you broke your resolution. Uh, But anyway, I just say that to, to help you understand that's not really what we're talking about when we're talking about a resolution. Here's a better understanding of what a resolution should be. I remember when we were raising funds to go to South Africa, and we would attend lots of conferences. We attended a couple of the GARBC national conferences, and one of my favorite parts of those conferences was every year they would have a time where they shared the resolutions from that particular conference. Now, what they would do is they, they would, the conferences would always be, or the resolutions would always be scripturally based, and many times they were relevant for what was going on in the world at that time. Let me read one of them, and it's fitting for what we looked at last week, so I thought it was, uh, as I was looking for a good resolution to share with you, I thought it would be uh, very appropriate to share this one. It's from the 2018 GARBC conference in Fishers, Indiana. It's entitled, The Dignified Status and Proper Treatment of Women, okay? You you understand that, well, was it this month is, is Women's Month, okay? Uh, so it's, it's appropriate that we think about what is the role of women? We talked about it last week. And so from a biblical prese- position, here's a resolution about the dignified status and the proper treatment of women. It says, in recent days, there has been a heightened awareness of, of and an emphasis on the widespread objectification and mistreatment of women in numerous sectors of our society, Offenses have been brought to light that occurred in the entertainment, governmental, business, and even ecclesiastical worlds. In many cases, this has brought shame and reproach upon the reputation of the church and, by extension, upon the reputation of Christ. At times, critics have seized upon these abuses and used them as an opportunity to attack Scripture and or the complementarian understanding of gender, gender roles. In response to all of these occurrences and developments, we wish to articulate our position on the dignified status and the proper treatment of women. So here's what resolutions often do. It says, we affirm, first of all, men and women are alike created in God's image, Genesis 1, 26 through 27, Genesis 2, 15 through 25, and are therefore equal in value, dignity, humanity, and worth. In Christ, number two, men are not spiritually or religiously advantaged or privileged over women. Both men and women are equally redeemed, adopted, justified, forgiven, and accepted in Christ. Galatians 3, 28 and 1 Peter 3, 7. We looked at it last week. Number three, Christian men should strive always to follow Christ's example in valuing women and treating them with respect and kindness. For example, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, Luke 8, 43 through 48, 10, 38 through 42, 13, 16, John chapter 4, verses 7 through 26. There's a a ton of scriptures that show that Jesus valued women. 
the resolution goes on to say, both inside and outside the local church. Number four, I think we're at. Christian husbands should foster a spirit of Christ-like love, gentleness, and understanding within the home. Ephesians 5, 25, 1 Peter 3, 7. Next, objectification of women is both violative of biblical sexual ethics, Matthew 5, 27 and 28, and 1 John 2, 16, and is inconsistent with the dignity intrinsic to all women as bearers of the divine image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, James 3, 9. And lastly, uh, abuse, whether physical or emotional, and harassment of women are grave sins. Proverbs 3, 29, 1 Corinthians 6, 18, 13 through 4 through 8, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5, and Titus 3, 2. And allegations of abuse or harassment should never be taken lightly. Furthermore, also very common in resolutions where they say, be resolved and be it further resolved and so on. Furthermore, the resolution says, concerning the controversial subject of biblical gender roles, we affirm that, and I would say that we as a church affirm these things as well, as well as the things mentioned about women. Number one, the Bible teaches a complementarian approach to gender roles. 1 Corinthians 11, 3, Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, and 3, 1 through 7. However, this should never be taken as an excuse for male leaders to demean or take advantage of women or exercise their God-given authority in a harsh, heavy-handed, or self-serving manner. Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28, 2 Corinthians 1, 24, 1 Peter 5, 3. Secondly, biblical submission properly understood and executed is not demeaning, nor does it imply a lessening of dignity, worth, or giftedness, expression of humility, and willingness to follow God-ordained roles. Just as Christ humbled himself to the will of the Father, Luke twenty-two forty-two, John six thirty-eight, Philippians 2, 6-8, without thereby becoming demeaned or inferior. And lastly, women have an invaluable role to play and a contribution to make in the church's mission of making disciples from every nation. Matthew 28, 19, Acts 1, 14, Romans 6, 1 through 2, Titus 2, 3 through 5. We praise and thank God for all his male and female servants who seek above all else to know Christ and to make him known. Anybody ever make a New Year's resolution like that? No. But this resolution points us to what scripture teaches about how to live life. Okay? You see, a real resolution is made is based on truth and facts derived from an expectation that we should live up to, not to a pie-in-the-sky, unrealistic hope that has no real foundation. Some resolutions have a statement, something like this, be it therefore resolved. That's just that old language that makes you sit up and take notice, right? Be it further resolved. In other words, we are committed to doing this because it is the right thing to do. Peter's calling the church to be resolved to an act in a particular way. Our study this morning and in previous weeks will help us see the way Peter is calling us to walk. You know, the blessing of this walk is that when we are walking this walk, we can be confident that God will bring about a unity of heart and mind within the body of Christ. When you and I are resolved to do what is right, God will bring a unity to this body. 
Believers are to live in harmony together, maintaining a common commitment to the truth that produces an inward unity of heart with one another. We can find that in Romans 12, 5, uh, 12, 5 and verse 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, among other passages of Scripture. We, we need not be in conflict with one another. And when Peter was writing, they were under severe persecution. So even though we may face persecution, we don't need to be in conflict with one another. You know, let, let me boil that down to something that might be a little more practical for us. Um, when we're in pain, whatever the source of pain, we're not even going to consider that. But when we're in pain, uh, at least I know this is true of me, I don't always act the way I should. I don't always respond the way I should because pain is something that kind of takes center stage in your mind. And when you're in pain, you just you, everything else takes second place. So you might respond harshly. You might not respond at all. Peter's saying when you're facing persecution, which often led to severe pain, there's no reason to do the wrong thing. You still need to do what is right. You still need to live the way God has called us to live. And that is in obedience to the commands of Christ. How do we do that? How, how do we live? How do we submit? How do we become resolved to be obedient to the cause of Christ? Well, let me share this with you. First of all, it starts with a right attitude. You and I have to have a right attitude. And, and sometimes, you know, you've seen it as well as I have. Sometimes people are proud about their terrible attitude. You know, they, they, make, they make light of having a bad attitude, uh, and, and they're like, it's, you know, it's like we have a right to have a bad attitude. Well, we don't. And Peter is calling us to have a right attitude, uh, and, and that's the mindset. When we talk about attitudes around here, we're talking about the mindset that we have. And the mindset for Christians, it ought to be one that leads to Christ-likeness. Peter describes that Christ-likeness, uh, that Christ-like attitude or mindset using uh, a couple of different terms here in verse 8. We've read it already, so I'm not going to read it again, but he calls us to be of one mind, or he calls us to be harmonious, if you will. That word harmonious, that idea of being like-minded, compassionate towards one another, it's the word uh, that we looked at and worked on this summer when we did the Froneo Project. Anybody remember the Froneo Project? Um, we're not kicking that to the curb. We'll probably uh, re-institute uh, that uh, this summer again like we did last summer. But remember what the word Froneo means? The word Froneo, it means to be of the same mind. It means to be like-minded, okay? So when you and I are harmonious, we're of the same mind. We're like-minded. And Peter's not calling here for a generic kind of unity. He's calling here for a unity that is based on God's word. And the key is not what God's word says to me, but the key is what God's word says. Can I tell you this? That when we open up the pages of scripture and we read the word of God, there is only one correct interpretation of God's word. I can't say, well, this is what it means for me. And you can't say, but it means something different for me. It is what it is, if we can take that uh, contemporary phrase, it is God's word. And God's word says what it means. And when we interpret it correctly, we should come up with the same interpretation. That's why Bible study skills are so important. 
I mentioned earlier that we could do an inductive Bible study of the song, His Robes for Mine. That's the way you and I should always be studying Scripture, inductively. It's not mysterious. It doesn't mean something to one person and something to another person. There is one interpretation of Scripture. And when we rightly divide the word that that Paul uses uh, when he writes to Timothy, uh, I I beseech you to be diligent students of the Word of God, rightly dividing the Word of truth. When we rightly divide the Word of truth, we are going to come up with a consistent interpretation of God's Word. When taking hermeneutics class, they tell you that there is one interpretation and many applications. Okay? So that's where it becomes, I study God's word, I understand what God's word says, and I apply it to my life in the situation I find myself in. So there are various applications, but there can only ever be one interpretation of God's word. And, and so that's why it's so important that we study God's word. When I study God's word, I don't stand up here to give you my opinion. I stand up here to give you what I believe God says. This is what his word is declaring. Peter knows that when we see things the way God sees them, that then as a body, we will be unified on the things that matter most. The things of Scripture. The things of God's word. That doesn't mean we can't have preferences and we can't have opinions and we can't have traditions. But what that means is that all of those things must be under, submitted to what the word of God says for us. We want to be harmonious as brothers and sisters that make up the body of Christ. The second thing that we need to be putting into practice in our life as we are developing the right attitude is We have to be humorable. You like that word? Humorable. I made it up. I'll I'll, I'll give it to you, okay? you, You look it up in the dictionary, you won't find it, okay? But you know what? All of these words that Peter's talking about here in verses 8 through 12, they all have a very similar meaning. And as I was trying to find another H word, because I had worked on all the other ones, I couldn't come up with one, so I made one up. But I'm not making up truth. I'm simply taking God's word and making a word that fits with it, okay? Um, So anyway, when when Peter says uh, he wants us to be sympathetic, that's another kind of a confusing word. That's like my word humorable. Okay, what does it mean? Well, uh, you know, have you ever tried to say something to somebody and as you were trying to get the words out, they started to interrupt you and you said, humor me for a minute, will you? Let's just pretend, indulge me for a minute. Let me explain what I'm saying. That's really what Peter's saying here. We need to be willing to indulge others. Not indulge them in sin, but indulge them as they communicate to us and as they they, they try to become like Christ. We want to be sympathetic with them. We want to take their interests, their needs, their concerns into account. We need to listen to what our brothers and sisters are saying. But more than that, we need to be willing to give up our desire for the sake of another. Especially when there's no right or wrong on either side of the thought process. Now, you might be thinking, why would I do that or why should I do that? Well, Peter continues and he says, because it's the right thing to do. As we think about the life that we're living and life that we're doing right now... Are there areas that we can indulge one another with? That we can be sympathetic, we can listen to their opinion and we can take it into consideration. We can say, all right, fine, I have no big deal. 
Let's just agree that that's okay, and let's move on. Again, we're not talking about where there's a right or a wrong. We're just talking about this is, this is an opinion that somebody has. This is a preference that somebody has. This is what I feel I should do, and there's no clear-cut thing in Scripture that says I shouldn't do it. Then you indulge them. You let them do it. You be sympathetic with them. And why? Because of heartfelt love. Peter goes on, if you want to have the right mindset, we need to have a heartfelt love, or he called it brotherly love. Sometimes this is hard for us to do, isn't it? It means that we have to put the needs or maybe the wants or even the desires of of another ahead of our own. When we think about it, it's another trait that helps us conform to the likeness of Jesus. He certainly put the needs of others ahead of his own needs, didn't he? If you think about it, we're going to get really uh, involved with the Easter season here coming up pretty soon. But that's the greatest example of Jesus putting the needs of others ahead of his own. Jesus laid down his life for mankind so that mankind could be reconciled to his father. He knew there was no other way for lost man to be brought back into a right relationship with God and to be able to spend all of eternity with God in the presence of God. So he laid down his life for mankind. Not only is Jesus the ultimate example of what we call agape love, we know what that is, right? That sacrificial kind of love that expects nothing in return uh, from the people that you are demonstrating that love to, but he's also the greatest example of phileo love or what we call brotherly love, the love that puts the needs of others ahead of our own needs, our own desires. You see, brotherly love is most often seen through service. And this service should begin in the church of Jesus Christ, the body of local believers, and should blossom out from there. We should be loving one another so much in this body that people have no question about the love of Jesus Christ that we have. And then as we go out from this room, this, these four walls, this building we call church, that love should ooze out of us because we've been loving each other so much that it just is the natural response to love others. So we want to be tender-hearted towards one another. We want to be looking at the needs of others as the body of Christ. He goes on and he talks about you and I being humane or tender-hearted is the word that is in the copy of Scripture, uh, at least the New King James that we're reading from this morning. Tender-hearted. The best understanding of this word, tender-hearted, is, is to translate it as humane. And it may not be, uh, the best understanding may not be in consideration of people, okay? Uh, but it may be in regard to animals. So what are you talking about, Pastor? Well, all over the country, there are organizations called humane societies. And you know what? They have nothing to do with human beings. They have everything to do with dogs and cats and other pets, And I'm not, I love, we have two dogs. You know that. We love our dogs. But they're not human. What are these humane societies calling for? They're calling for us to see them and treat them as humane. And that's a good thing. We should treat our animals well because God created them. All right? Not to to abuse them. But what these guys, what these organizations are doing is they're acting, they're calling for us to put to action a thought process that says these animals should be treated well. They should be treated responsibly. They should be cared for. Wow. Stop and think about that and what that means for Christians. 
Peter was writing to Christians, telling them to be humane to other Christians. <laughs> what does that mean? It means that some weren't treating others with tenderheartedness or humanely. So we're calling for animals to be treated humanely. Peter's saying, no, no, no. Well, he's not saying no, no, no. He's saying, hey, listen to me. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to treat each other humanely. We need to put the needs of another person or other people ahead of our own. Again, this should be a given in the church, right? We shouldn't have any questions about this. We shouldn't have any issues about this. But sometimes we do. And Peter is saying to the Christians, to the believers he's writing to, to the church he's writing to, hey, treat one another humanely, tenderheartedly. And how do you do that? You put their needs ahead of your own. The people that are part of the body of Christ, we should love them. We should care for them. We should care about this community in which we live so that what we do doesn't cause problems in the community and we're willing to live with one another in peace and honor one another and care for one another. He goes on and he says, fifthly, that we should have honorable, that we should be honorable and helpful. Again, his word is courteous. This is a virtue that seems less and less common in our world today, doesn't it? The idea of being courteous. Would you agree with me that when you come across a courteous person, it's actually quite refreshing and it brightens your day? Josiah stayed with us Friday night and Saturday. Uh, we told him we would stop at, the, at Burn Dairy and pick up some chocolate milk because he loves chocolate milk. Okay, so as we stopped at Burn Dairy, uh, we got out of the car and we were walking, and there was a, a, another gentleman who was approaching the door at the same time. So I, I said to Josiah, "I says let's let's just wait here, buddy, and let this guy go in first." So the guy went in first. He opened the door and he held the door for us. And I said to Josiah, "I said so, so Josiah, what do you say to this man for holding the door for us?" Thank you, Josiah replied. Thank. You. I didn't have to teach him. I just asked him, "What do you say?" Thank you. Okay, so we went about our business and we bought some treats and then we got the chocolate milk and we went up to the, the, the line and there was several people in line. So I said, well, let's, show, just, let's go to the back of the line and, and take our place in the line where, where we belong to be because we're giving other people their turn. And he says, okay, Grandpa. So we went to the back of the line and we stood and some people walked in front of us and, and, and then we got up to the line, uh, to the register and, and the guy that was standing behind the register says, how are you today? And, and, and I looked at Josiah and I didn't have to say anything. He said, fine. And I said, what do you ask him, Josiah? And he says, how are you? And the guy says, I'm great today, thank you. Uh, and, and so we're trying to be courteous. And when you come across somebody who's courteous and treats you with a, in a courteous manner, it brightens your day. Those people had a smile on their face when they saw Josiah respond the way he did. And we had a, we had a good little laugh with the guy who was running the register. And he brightened our day, and we hope we brightened his. You see, we, as the, as the body of Christ, we want to be courteous to one another. And you know what else? Being courteous is contagious. If you're courteous to somebody, they're more likely to be courteous to the next person that they see. It inspires you to do what is right, and on and on, and it has a ripple effect. And you know what? This is another trait that shows that we are striving to become more and more like Jesus. Paul put it this way over in Philippians 2, when he challenged the readers to be like Christ. He says, do nothing through selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than others. 
I'm convinced that if we're doing that, the world's going to be a lot better place. That verse is Philippians chapter 2, I think it's verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. You know, we need to teach our children that. And we need to model that for our children. So it starts with having the right attitude as, as followers of Christ. We can never hope to have the resolve that we need to have if we don't have the right attitude. Peter goes on and he says, we need to have the right acknowledgement. The right acknowledgement. When we acknowledge truth or what is right, we are able then to respond in the right way. He said it in verse 9 that we don't pay back evil for evil and so on and so on. You see, in the heat of the moment, it might not be easy to respond the right way. However, if we're in the habit of doing what is right, filling our mind with what is good, feeding on the word of God, then we will more likely respond the way we should respond, the way we should respond in a way that honors the Lord. When we react, we are allowing the circumstances around us to control us. But when we respond, we are in control of the situation around us. A reaction would be returning evil for evil. Remember the Wicked Witch of the West and the Wizard of Oz after Dorothy's house landed on her sister? She threatened Dorothy. She said, I'll get you, my pretty! And that evil, cackling voice that only the Wicked Witch could do. Thank you. I've, I've been working on it. All right? You see... The, the wicked witch of the West, she wanted to repay evil for evil. And it wasn't even Dorothy's fault. How do you control where your house lands in a, in a tornado? Okay? But she was wicked by nature. And so she had a wicked response. She's evil for evil. This word evil means evil character or evil nature. And it's not just one that does evil, but it is one who is intrinsically evil or morally corrupt. And you know what? Those of us who have been redeemed, we must remember we are new creatures in Christ. We don't have that evil old nature. Well, we still have it, but we don't have to give in to it. We don't have to feed it. We don't have to let it be that which controls us. Paul says, and I already quoted it when we were doing communion this morning, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away, and behold, all things are becoming new. You and I do not have to repay evil for evil. When we do, it's a choice that we make. We're choosing to do it. The ways of the world should be less and less a part of our lives as we grow in Christ. The things that we used to do as unbelievers that characterize the world around us in which we live, they should be less and less a part of those of us who are living stones. We should be looking more and more like Jesus with each passing day. Not only do we not return evil for evil, he says don't return reviling for reviling. You see, the phrase here boils down to the way we speak to and about others. It's about our tongue. Peter tells us that those who are living stones should not speak abusively to others, shouldn't use the kind of language that is characterized by the world. Cursing at others should not be part of our practice. If foul language is not part of our normal way of life, then when you are encountered with a difficult situation, the foul language isn't going to come out because it's not part of your everyday life. That's something that a lot of people struggle with after they get saved. 
And unfortunately, we live in a world where even in the church, people are saying, ah, that's okay to use that kind of language. No, it's not. We shouldn't be using that kind of language. We don't use reviling for reviling. This word reviling, it means to speak evil of, especially when someone has spoken evil of you first. Don't do it, Peter says. And then there's that word. What's the next word in the text? But. So we don't do evil for evil. We don't do reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, Peter says, or here's what I expect from you. Better yet, here's what God expects from us as followers of Christ, that we do blessing. And that doesn't just mean when somebody sneezes that you say, bless you. Okay? That's not what the word, that's not the idea of blessing. What we see here is Paul's principle of substitution again. Stop doing the wrong and replace it with what is right. I remember taking a, a, a class out at uh, Lafayette. And it was their first course, and, and not the first one they ever did, but it's the first in a series of courses that they, that they offer for training counselors. Uh, and one of the questions they asked in that course was, how do you know that a thief is no longer a thief? Any ideas? How do you know when a thief is no longer a thief? When he stops stealing. Yeah? You agree with that? When they become saved, hopefully they stop. They should if there's a change of life. Okay, you know, you know how I like to give you more complete definitions of things? Like faith, holiness, those kinds of things. There's more of a definition, a more complete definition or answer to that question. When is a thief no longer a thief? When he stops stealing and he starts doing what is right with his hands. Pastor, where do you come up with that definition? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28 says this, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Why does a thief steal? Because he thinks he needs something. Whether that's a legitimate thought or not, but that's generally why people steal. Okay? Paul says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a thief is no longer a thief when he's working with his hands. He's no longer stealing. He's working with his hands, providing good, and doing something that's going to help somebody else who has a need. You see, we talk about reformation in prisons, right? Right? The prison would tell you that Victor has gone through a reformation process and he is reformed. You know what Victor would tell you? He's not been reformed. He's been transformed. He's been transformed. You see, Peter goes on to say, not only should we not do evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but we should bless. Why? Because Peter says, you've been called to this. You've been blessed beyond your imagination. You've been blessed more than you can even understand. And because of that blessing, you've been called to be a blessing so that your inheritance may be lived out. I don't think that Peter is saying that the blessing should be our motivational factor for living the way God has called us to live, but he's telling us that it's more of the outcome of our salvation. 
God called us to a relationship with him. There is not a greater blessing than knowing Christ as your Savior. Okay? And the end result of that knowledge of Christ as Savior and being born again is the result of eternal life. It's another amazing blessing. I think Peter is actually telling us to live out that blessing. Not just be thankful for it and grateful for it, but live it out so others can see it and want to know more about it and you can communicate to them the blessing that you have. You've been called to communicate that blessing to others. So as we think about Peter's, uh, the right acknowledgement, you and I, we need to acknowledge the truth that God has called us to a different lifestyle, a different way of doing life, life that should look different from the rest of the world. He goes on and he says, you also need to have the right approval. In our minds, we need to have the right standard. And God has set that standard for us. We must live that standard out in everyday life. Peter's going to give us the correct standard here in verse 10. He says, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. You see, Peter wants us to allow others to see in us the standard that we have set for ourselves. The standard is not a worldly standard. The standard that has been set for us is that of Christ-likeness. Remember the guy by the name of, not that you ever met him, but a guy by the name of Ponce de Leon? What was he looking for? He was looking for the fountain of youth. Okay? The fountain of youth has been something that mankind has been looking for, uh, I mean, all the way back to the pages of Scripture. You know, and, and you know what? Nobody's ever found it. Well, at least not what they think the fountain of youth is. Peter asked that very question. Do you want to see life, long life? You want to have a long life spelled out in front of you? Do you want to live it to a ripe old age? He tells us how in verses 10 and 11. First of all, he says, and it's, it's really pretty simple. He says, control your speech, your tongue. You know, James was right when he said that the tongue is a little member, but it can cause a great fire in the life of the child of God. As a child of God, we're told that our tongue can be a challenge or controlling our tongue can be a challenge. Peter says, refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking lie. Jesus never spoke evil. Can you ever recall a place in Scripture where Jesus spoke evil to somebody else or wished evil for somebody else? He spoke in truth. Okay, Now, sometimes he told people that they were evil and what the results of their evil would be, but he never spoke evil to them or about them. So we see here that Jesus is our example. Jesus wants us to live the way he lives. And you know why Jesus never spoke evil? Because it's not part of his character. And it shouldn't be part of ours either because we are new creatures in Christ. As we become more and more like our Savior, evil should be less and less a part of our character. Back in verse uh, 22, or yeah, verse 22 of chapter 1, Peter stated the trait of Jesus that we should emulate. It says, He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. If there's no deceit in our mouth, guess what? We're not speaking evil. We're not, we're not speaking things that are uncharacteristic of the child of God. 
So number one, if we want to have our life with the right approval, we want to control our speech. Number two, we want to conduct ourselves rightly before God. Peter says, turn away from evil. Turn away from evil. Before we were saved, our heart was bent toward that which was evil. The conduct is the result of the conduct of, retur- of turning away from evil is the result of repentance. The about face that God called us to when he saved us. We have this new life in Christ and we turn away from evil. I referred to Ephesians chapter 4 earlier when I asked you about a thief who is no longer a thief. Paul reminds us there in Ephesians chapter 4 the believer's journey from their former lifestyle to their new life in Christ. He calls us to righteous living, to live like Jesus. In verse 17, Paul says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And by Gentiles there, he means unbelievers. Okay, You no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitfulness, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true holiness. So Peter and Paul agree that we need to conduct ourselves rightly before God. How does that manifest itself? Well, it manifests itself when we're looking out for the well-being and the interests of others. We have to keep moving. Um, I'm, and I'm blaming it on communion this morning. That's why we're going over, right? Okay. Um, positive agitation. Positive agitation. You know what an agitator does? What's an agitator do? Oh, come on. My, my seventh grade English teacher told me you can't define a word by using the word you're trying to define. Okay, swishes the clothes around. Creates friction. Stirs up. Okay? So yeah, an agitator stirs things up. I have, I have two or three people that I know um, that, are, that should be people in the know when you talk about washing machines. Okay? Um, we had a guy in South Africa that we bought most of our appliances, most of our furnitures from. And, and we had to buy a new washing machine. We went into his, uh, his shop and he said, oh, pastor, please, please don't buy one of those fuzzy logic machines. That's what they called these. The, it was just before front, front loaders were coming out and, and, you know, all the new technology. Don't buy this fuzzy logic stuff. You need a machine that has an agitator in it. And I said, well, why is that, Harold? And he says, because if you have this this fuzzy logic, this pulsating stuff that's in your washing machine, the stuff settles to the bottom and all that it pulsates is the water around it. You gotta keep turning that clothes, clothes around, getting them up, moving through the water so the deter- detergent goes throughout the clothes and when it comes out, it comes out clean. You can't get that without an agitator. Okay, Harold. So we bought a Speed Queen or a Whirlpool, whatever, I think it was a Whirlpool. Uh, top loader, just like you buy here in America. We moved back to America, and one of the first things that we had to buy was a washing machine. What did we buy? A top loader, the one with the stick, yeah, a top loader, okay? Uh, because we had a friend who was in the washing machine repair business, he said, Pastor, please don't buy these front loaders. Two reasons. They don't get the clothes clean, and they don't have the lifestyle, the life 
time of a, of an ag- a front loader, top loader. You got to have the agitator. The agitator makes clothes clean. I have a guy that I met at uh, Men's Adventure. He drives through. He, you know what he does? He, he owns a lot of the, or his company owns a lot of the laundry mats between uh, where he lives in Syracuse and beyond. So we're on his route and he stops and we were having a problem with our washing machine. And I said to him, I said, Wayne, I says, what should I do? He says, oh, don't, buy, don't buy the front loader. If, as long as you can still buy a top loading machine with an agitator pastor, buy it. You get the idea? Agitation is good in some settings, in some circumstances. In the church, we are to be agitators, but agitators for the right things and in the right way. We want to make sure that we are stirring one another up to do what is right. Our Lord is our agitator. Jesus is our agitator. Peter says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Can I tell you this? The Lord is watching us, He's looking which should provide incentive for us to do what is right. When people say, or when people know that they're being watched, they're more likely to do the right thing. Why do you think there's so many cameras in our world today? Because there's so much bad stuff going on. So if you put cameras up, people are going to notice the cameras and they're going to say, you know what? Somebody might see what I'm doing. If there's a camera here, I better do the right thing. All right? We got something better than a camera. We got Jesus. The Lord is watching us. He's actually watching us. You know what? He's cheering us on. He's calling us to do the right thing. He wants us to follow his example. And when we're doing right, you know what else Peter says? He's listening to our prayers. He's hearing us. When we're not doing right, you know what? He's not listening. Not because he can't, but because we've let a, a wall be built up between us. That wall has to be dealt with. Sin has to be confessed and done away with. You see, the Lord wants us to do what is right because that enhances our communication with him. Peter goes on to say, when we're not doing what the Lord wants us to do, he's not listening, and you know what? The eyes of the Lord are against those who do evil. You know why? Because he can't be for them. Because it's against his character. God can't be for something that's against his character. Was working with a couple in South Africa, and I told the daughter, "I said, listen, you gotta, you gotta stop doing what you're doing. You can't live that way. God can't bless that. God can't honor that kind of a lifestyle." So then she was talking to her mom. And her mom said, I need to talk to somebody about something um, spiritual. And her daughter, who I thought was probably upset with me for confronting her about living the way she was living, you know, she told her mom, you need to go talk to Pastor Tim because he doesn't pull any punches. He tells you the truth. He tells you like it is. He doesn't mess around. That's what Peter's saying here. God is looking, God is listening, God is watching, and he wants us to do the right thing. And when we do the right thing, he is honored by that, and he hears us. He answers our prayers when we're not doing the right thing. Not controlling our tongue or whatever, not submitting to the authorities, whatever it is. When we're not doing the right thing, God doesn't hear us. 
because we're not following in line with his character. So in summary of submission, Peter calls believers to be obedient or to submit to obedience, obedience in every way. Obedience in every aspect of life. As long as we are not called to disobey God, we are to obey those, whoever they may be, that are in authority over us. And I'm not going to go through it again. You know who they are. We are to submit to them. And why do we submit to them? Well, it becomes clear through what Peter is saying in other pages of Scripture. It's clear that the Lord honors our obedience by various kinds of blessings like hearing our prayers, like blessing our lives together in the home and blessing our lives together in the church and community. So as we close this morning, or should I say finally, let's be here this morning. Let's leave here this morning committed to obeying the call of God from the pen of Peter to submit to those things that honor God and allow him to bless our lives and cause us to be better communicators of his plan of salvation to others. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. More challenging words from the Apostle Peter. Words from a holy man of God who was moved by your spirit to write these things for our well-being, for our good. Help us, Father, as we process what Peter said reminding ourselves that there is only really one correct interpretation of your word. Help us to arrive at that interpretation of submitting to your plan, your will, your challenges, your call for us in our lives. Submit to those who are in authority, whatever that authority may be, knowing that you granted them that authority. Not necessarily that it would be easy for us, but remembering that we have the power of God living within us to help us be obedient in every aspect of life. Thank you for Peter and challenging us with the difficult things that we need to be challenged with from time to time and help us to to be committed, to be resolved, if you will, this morning to follow the call of Christ in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.